everybody. I am professional cyclist Ted King. I am sometimes professional cyclist Laura King. I am your 46-year-old age grouper, Stu Streeter. And welcome to Gravel Kings. As we wrapped up the previous episode, we had been talking with Stu about um, a lengthy bike ride that he has coming up. And so before we dive into that subject, I wanted to get a little bit of, of background historical scene setting, if you will. I wanted to talk about each of our longest bike rides. And so the most literal question is, what is your longest bike ride? And the qualifier could be, if your longest bike ride is kind of boring, but your like third longest bike ride is actually quite interesting, then you can give us either of those answers. Um, do we have hands raised amongst the room? Would anyone like to go first? I'm also happy to go first. I'll go. <laughs> Let's see. It was 2020, um, and I think it was, I was 10 weeks postpartum, and we were in the deep into COVID and, you know, rides were mostly being done alone. Um, and we were also, you had started a DIY gravel series, which was kind of do the race that we were supposed to be doing, um, you know, seek out a, a ride course that would be similar and kind of be inspired by that ride, ride and go do it elsewhere in your community or hometown. Um, and so here we are with a newborn and um, really just spending a lot of time at home. The bike for me was very much kind of my my solace and my me time. So I was very excited when um, Ted launched DIY. It was Unbound at that time. Or that was the BWR. The so yeah, I know exactly where we were. It was May. I want no, to say mid-May. This is the one after. Okay. Well, what length bike ride are you doing? Oh, okay, sorry. And, I when believe you, it was 204 miles. I wasn't tallying how many weeks postpartum was Laura was doing her <laughs> double centuries. Sorry. She, I was thinking of her 140-mile ride two weeks prior. Trip. There were you did, a, you did a 140 and then a 130 two weeks apart just a few weeks after having baby? I did. So... You know, Ted launched this idea and he was doing it. And so then suddenly I had the motivation like, well, if you're doing it, I want to do it. Laura's middle name <laughs> is literally, this is true. Her middle name is FOMO. <laughs> is it, you it's don't true. have FOMO, do you really? Oh, terribly. Really? Terribly. I just thought it was this like crazy high achievement in you that just uh, achieves, achieves, achieves. Well, that would, that, that is all. I'm an Enneagram three. Of course, because that's the correct answer on the Enneagram. Yes. What are you, Ted? Speaking of which, Enneagram, are no you? Idea. He doesn't know. He's no, probably a five. What am I? You know, you're not supposed to ever try to guess somebody's Enneagram. It's like the first rule of Enneagram: <laughs> don't guess the Enneagram. It's like Fight Club. But I'm a three have, as well. Yeah, I'm not. I actually have not landed on what I think you are. Nice. I'm an enigma. <laughs> but I think you should three figure it seven out. diverted two niner. You're a man of mystery. All right, anyway, back to Laura's ride. Yeah. Back to the story. Let's bring it back to so, yes, Ted launched this whole series in which we were inspired to do these long rides. Um, it was really cool when we did the BWR ride, 140 miles, because Ted drove the entire 140 miles with Hazel in the car and would stop so I could breastfeed her. 
She was about two months old at that. Yeah, May. Yeah, eight weeks. Um, that was cool. So that was really cool. So it was, you know, I, I wasn't particularly fast, but I just getting out there and being able to do that distance made made me feel alive and um, made me feel like me. And that's a common thread if you have heard a lot of my story in what kind of cycling has brought me through all these uh, change, changes of seasons in life. But um, this, the next ride, which was the 200-mile route, was actually one of my most memorable. So it started in Richmond, and Richmond, hometown. Vermont, hometown where we live. And we came to realize that it was exactly 204-ish miles to Portland, Maine. So point to point. Portland, Maine is where uh, my brother-in-law, Ted's brother, Robbie, lives. Um, so we thought it would be really fun to for me to ride over there and then also get to visit with him. Portland, uh, another great aspect of that town is it's a total foodie town. So when I think of Portland, I think of every food stop I want to go to. Um, Do you remember what effect the pandemic was happening? Because this was like that was June 2020. Were restaurants shut down or anything? No, but I remember we ate outside at most restaurants. Like Do we have lobster, lobster rolls, okay. <laughs> donuts, holy donut. Oh, my favorite. Um, so anyway, Ted mapped this incredible route, um, and it was it was a challenge in so many ways. In that I was stopping. I brought a breast pump around along. I had to pump and be really efficient. I even rode while pumping at one point. Um, I was navigating, self-navigating. I was on roads that I've never been on in my life. Um, the weather was really perfect and I never really had a major low throughout the day. I just like, the whole thing felt like this awesome exploration. I passed, so I hit three states in one day, which is cool because you pass through Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Um, and then about 25, 50 miles from the finish, Ted's brother came out and met me and rode me in and gave me a nice draft, the final stretch. And um, yeah, it was just such a cool adventure and a really fun way. I love, yeah, point to point, riding 200 miles is the way to do it. So it's just fun to feel like you've covered, I mean, that's a long car ride. So it's fun to feel like you've covered so much ground. That is so cool. It is a long car ride when you have a three-month-old and you're trying to... Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah, I passed Laura on the Kangamangas, which is a, a really cool, iconic highway in New Hampshire, knowing that you still had 100 miles to go got into Portland. You sent me up that horrifically steep... Oh, Hurricane, Hurricane Mountain, Road. Mountain Road. Wow, that was a doozy. That was fun. Okay. Very good. Excellent answer. Stu, I'm turning the tables to you. Tell me about your longest or most memorable. How can we even share at this point, Ted? Like she was giving life to a child <laughs> mid-ride <laughs> and went 200 miles. I'm like, but my... You can be like, I saved a sparrow. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm like, I, I'm imagining, you know, how do I, how do I do this? But here, here is, there is an inspiration to uh, my coolest and longest ride. I may have done some longer rides years and years and years ago when I was a younger man, but um, same kind of time frame. It was the, in the midst of COVID and 
I had wanted to set out and ride from my house, which is up on the foothills east of Sacramento, all the way to Chico, California, which is a very cool little college town north um, north of us. And I really thought that I could do it all on gravel, 135 miles, and I mapped it, and I called it the Three Rivers Ride, because you have the American River that comes pretty nearby my house, and then that kind of intersects the Sacramento River, and then you take that to the Feather River. And so you kind of have to hop, jump some levees along the way, and um, truth be told, I may have hopped a fence or two as well in that period of time. But I rode gravel, like 95% all gravel, 135 miles from my house up to Chico, and um, it was amazing except for I had no idea the amount of homelessness we have in the Sacramento Valley. And there was quite literally a hundred miles of homeless camps along the rivers where these homeless camps were set up and you would, you would pass one and, you know, three or four miles later, there'd be another. And it was just heartbreaking, heartbreaking to see it and uh, led to us getting involved in some homeless stuff around here that we continue to, to do and, host a shelter each year and do some really fun stuff. So it had a really cool uh, auxiliary impact that I had never anticipated it would. Uh, But 130 miles on all gravel um, was a long day. I think I was out maybe eight, eight and a half hours, eight hours, 40 minutes. And my lovely Jen Jen met me at a brewery when I rolled up and she just looked at me and said, you're going to have to like, spray yourself off or do something before we go inside that you can't, you can't go in public. (laughs) So that was mine. That was back in 2020 as well. Uh, So I'll get my 200 under my belt here soon, but. I love that though. I mean, it's just an example of the bike is a, gives you a different perspective and outlook on the world. You see the world and you see, you, you see what you're, I guess, exploring in a different way and it can have a different impact than if you were just in the car distracted passing you know doing your usual correct and there's there's no way to see a city like seeing a city by bike right just right especially your point with the the homelessness i mean talk about something that's swept under the rug or swept away i mean often they are abutting the highways but like swept away from your natural purview and then yeah, and the bike allows you such a different perspective, and and goodness gracious, what a cool, to your point, auxiliary upshot. So that's really neat. Good answer. Good answer. Um, mine came in the form of a 310-mile ride, the whole length of Vermont from the northern Canadian border to the southern Massachusetts border. And then there's a lot of little tidbits that uh, I'll try to throw in the important ones. Just today, my friend and fellow professional cyclist from New England, Tim Johnson, sent me a video that's on the Radivist from our 2015 attempt, successful attempt, of the 200 on 100, which is a ride that lives in, in New England cycling lore going the entire length of the state, 200 miles entirely on one road, Route 100, hence the name 200 on 100. And we did it that year, and our friend Chris Milliman created a, a really beautiful short video about it. Um, the ride had been going on for, for decades, and there's no official 
event. It takes place often on the, the, the summer equinox, but you can do it at any point. You can start any time. Um, there is no official ledger. You just go ride it. And that particular year in 2015, we absolutely smoked it. We had ridiculous horsepower. I think there were, uh, call it a half dozen of us who rode the whole ride, and we averaged like 22 miles per hour, which is a lot over the course of 200 miles and like 14, 15,000 feet of climbing. Um, so, well, and, and for I, those not from Vermont, let me interject really fast. Those not from that part of the country have no idea how much climbing there is on that ride as well. I mean, it is not flat. Well, it's, it's exactly that. It's not flat. Like the longest climb is maybe 20 minutes, but then outside of that, you're just, you are rolling up, down, up, down, up, down all day. Uh, yeah, the Appalachians are, are ancient and that means they're pretty worn down, but they're craggy. They're nothing but craggy. And then I bring up the 200 and 100. I bring up Tim because it relates to Laura's ride, which is after Tim and I had done the 200 on 100 a couple of years, we did the 200 not on 100 where we started picking points throughout New England. And so one year we rode from Portland to Prohibition Pig, which is a great brewery, uh, gastro pub here in Vermont. And yeah, linking together these super long rides became a really fun activity. What the heck else are you going to do but ride really long distances? And so then there's like this one-upsmanship of how far you can ride. And then that is what brings me to my long ride, 300 miles across the state, which is taking a page out of the 200 on 100, but then making it entirely gravel, which was my 2020 DIY gravel DK Unbound Edition. Like, how can I do some super long ride? Um, Joe Cruz is a, a well-known person in the bikepacking adventure, long-distance cycling world. He's, he's everyone's favorite philosopher, uh, as he is a philosophy professor at Williams College, just down the road in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And I pinged him. I was like, hey, Joe, do you know of any New England cross Vermont rides? And he said no. And I thought that was basically the end of it. But then, a, I don't know, two, three days later, he... he I could tell he was interested, and he had the draft of the route, and he sent it off to me. And So, yeah, push comes to shove. Um, at about 11 p.m. on some particular day where I was trying to dodge some rainstorms, we ended up hitting them pretty head-on, uh, rode the full length of the state. I think it took 21, 22 hours. Um, what, if it was June, then we had a... Four-month-old, three-month-old daughter, Laura and Hazel, met me at about mile 170, which is, yeah, almost exactly halfway through. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, how could I ever keep finishing this thing? I mean, I was smoked at that point. Yeah, uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so you can see the highlights and the lowlights. There's a video that my, my good friend Ansel created during our summer of DIY gravel. Uh, it's a beautiful video. It's worth Yeah, this, is this the film of you guys visiting the various breweries? No. That's a different one. That was okay. that was a fun one too. That was really cool as well. Yeah. Well, we should link to these in the show <laughs> notes because they're. I mean, the one that Ansel made of your cross Vermont is truly like it's a beautiful film. And not to self promote, but then <laughs> this past October, I got together with Tim and our other good friend Pete Gaston and wrote it again because when I did it that first time, like yeah, this was smash your head into the ground, bleed out of your eyes hard. Like, you were absolutely smoked. Um, 
And the whole time I was doing it, I was like, man, this would actually be a really fun ride if we did it over a couple of days. Like, why would I ever submit myself to this? Obviously, for the sake of finishing in a short period of time. Um, but so, sorry, punchline there is this past October, we did it over four days. And I know over the course of first doing it, first creating the route in 2020, that, that I don't know, dozens or, or hundreds of people at this point have done the route. And it's just, it's neat. Doing long distances is neat. Like this one-upsmanship is really cool, um, which I I present to our listener as much as I present to to Stu. Like you you mentioned it at the tail end of your story. You're, you got a two hundred mile ride coming up. Yeah, and I've never I've never done that before. So I am I should be more nervous than I am though. That does not mean I am not nervous. I am feeling nerves, but I'm just really excited and kind of pumped about the delirium of the middle of the night. So part of my dynamic for it is I'm going to depart at about 4 p.m. because I work a day job. And so I'll finish up in the office that day at four o'clock and then I'll mount up and head out. So it looks like the sun will set about 830 um, and probably get dark by about nine-ish um, out here, out west. Mm-hmm. And then I'll be in the dark all night. So uh, I, th- I think it's going to take me – well, I don't know. You tell me if I'm crazy. But I, I think I can do it in about 16 to 18 hours that puts me at like a 15 mile an hour average for the first 12 and then a 12 mile an hour average for the last four hours for like the last 70, 60, 70 miles. And without doing the back of the napkin math, does that, those are your pure averages, like including stopped time. I built in stop time. I built in four stop times at 20 minutes a stop. So that's built into the 16 hours if I can hold a 15 mile an hour average for the first 12 hours and then drop it down for the last little bit. So we'll see. I don't know. Like, where and what we, time does that roll you into your arrival point? 5 a.m. What? Yeah. Cause sorry, 7 a.m. Sorry. It, it takes me to the drop down in Red Bluff. So 7 a.m., I should get to ready. So I'll leave here. Four o'clock should get there by seven. So is there, sorry, when we spoke last about this, I was thinking this is like a bike packing adventure. Are you sleeping or the plan is just to go? I'm just going to go. Goodness gracious. How many caffeine pills are you going to take? I don't know. How many should I take? I don't know. I've never taken a caffeine pill in my life. Coffee's too good for that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you have yeah, experience have riding through the night, night after night, tour divide. Yeah, no, I have I have experience. I think, okay, hear me out. I suggest you slow your roll and either bring some gear and camp out, sleep out, bring a bivy, bring a sleeping bag, or credit card camp and ride until 10 p.m. And with any luck, there's a hotel within 10 miles and sleep out in the hotel and take a shower. Right. Yeah, that probably would be smarter. But man, there's just something about the intrigue of like, just put my head down and going for 16 hours. 
The pure exhaustion. All right. All right. I dig it. I think there is such an energy that comes from a new route that you've never done, a goal that you're that scares you a little bit. And I think there's a there's a lot of fuel that comes from that energy. So yeah. I think you'll be fine. Well, and there's a part of me that figures, like, even if I fail, and and to your point, Ted, if I hit the like, let's say I hit eight hour mark and I'm just like, there's just no way. Like I can't see straight. I gotta stop. Then I stop and I credit card camp it, right? I roll up to a hotel and I crash on a bed for four or five hours and then get up and finish the ride and it'll still be awesome. It'll be great. But if I don't try it, then I won't have ever tried it. So I don't know. That's kind of what I'm bouncing around right now. Um, you won't fail. I believe in you, Stu. Yeah. Either way. I mean, that's like, I, I, I'm often curious, what is the opposite of a rock in a hard place? Like what's a balance between two good things? Like you either... Do it all in one go, or you do it in two goes, and that's still two sweet bike rides divided by a night of sleep or a couple. Right? Hours. Yeah, I can't lose. I can't lose. All right, so let's go through like, let's go through the route. You you mentioned last time it is it is net downhill because it is a net downhill. However, yeah. it's still a, it's a fair amount of climbing over the two hundred miles. Well, not really. It's four thousand feet over two hundred miles. Okay, oh, I mean yeah, that's pretty flat. I mean, it's pretty, it's like, I mean, we're talking overpass I mean, to some extent. Yeah, unbound is 10,000 feet and 200 miles, and they still say that's... And the, the, and the 2,000 of that, the first 2,000 feet of climbing is in the first 30 miles, give or take. Because, right. uh, you know, I live up in the foothills, so I've got to essentially, you know, roll up and down and up and down and up and down to get down to Sacramento proper. And then it's, it's just pan flat for... 150 miles. And then once I get near Redding, California, which is where I'm going, then you start climbing again and it'll be another 2000 feet. So it's kind of 2000 feet in the first couple hours, 2000 feet in the last couple hours. Um, Have you gone as far as creating a route? Yeah. The roots made. Can you please text that over to me as we yeah. speak. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Uh, let's see. I, I can do it out of board over it. Or did you just like punch it in and then, go bike mode and say, do that portion. No, I, I, I plotted it, um, because there were a couple like towns I needed to hit. And obviously I needed to like hit a mini mark for some stops at a few spots. So it was like kind of every 60, 70 miles. I wanted to be sure that I was hitting something. And there's a lot along that way that you will not hit if you don't plan on it. Um, I would just like to warn you that if you leave right now, that your route might be affected by flooding. That is what Google Maps is telling me. I didn't realize how much how this is basically due north. I was thinking you're going like due west. No, 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 due north. Yeah, it has been awful lately uh, with the rain. And I snuck out for an hour and a half today and just dodged rain. But the wind was like going sideways. So, so windy. Um, just terrible, terrible. That's not fun at all. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, it was eight degrees here this morning. <laughs> you guys hey, are, you. you guys are built different. I saw Laura, your story. I don't, was that this morning on the fat bike? That was yesterday. Which Good grief. Well, yesterday was absurdly windy and quite cold, not eight degrees. It was 25 or so. Um, 
But the wind just really can kill you if you're in ex- unexposed areas of road. I think that's like what kills you with the cold. So yeah, the fat bike, I'm, I kind of forgot how good of a tool it is for days like those. Um, and then to open up the dirt roads again, because normally we're out on our road bike in the winter riding on the pavement. So there's this whole swath of you know area that we don't cover because so much of the dirt roads are... They really have to be prime conditions to ride them in winter, which they are right now. They're frozen. They're they're um, sanded over. The snow is sanded over, and so they're quite safe right now. And on a fat bike, and it, you know, you slow your speed down so you don't get as cold, and you're a little bit more protected from the wind. And I just had a blast out there. I was like, man, winter is. I'm getting to the period of winter where I've, you know, the acceptance period where I'm now like, oh, it's beautiful. I don't mind it. It takes me months to get to that point. Which actually says a lot because the last time we spoke, Stu, remember we were talking about weather and like the overcast is what what keeps the warmth in. Like we're actually having a winter. Whereas when we spoke last time, like we've had such a mild winter and it hasn't been snowy and it's been kind of like, meh. I mean like, truth be told, it's meant you've been able to ride outside quite a bit more. Now we're in like, Proper deep winter. It's cold. It is windy. It is white. Uh, so good work. That's beautiful, my dear, for being <laughs> like, yo, I want to go around a bike outside. Thanks. Yeah, that you guys. It really like I, I follow, and I know hundreds, if not thousands, of others are following your stuff in the winter as well. And it's both inspiring and a little like head scratching. Of like, you guys, like, you do know there are places you can live where it's not freezing all the time. Uh, And I get it. You love Vermont and Vermont's amazing. But I I am so impressed every time I see you guys out there. And it was like, Ted, you had that image uh, reel that you put up on Insta maybe last week or the week before. where It was like 15 days in a row of just, you know, muddy face. Freezing cold. No, 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 no. I put up one muddy face, and everybody's like, why don't you get a fender? I'm like, people, I've created this really long video that I poured my my all my energy into for a week talking about how I don't get muddy and I don't get filthy, and then I rode one time on a fat bike in the mud, knowing that I was going to get covered in mud, and the whole world shifted alive to be like, you need a fender. I mean, who rides a fat bike with a fender? Come on. <laughs> right. right. Uh, Appreciated though, thank you. To your point, you could live in a lot of other places that don't have snow. I I get that comment in my Strava every single time that I'm riding in the winter, and I'm like, I actually love riding in the winter, and I love skiing and doing all the other stuff and appreciating this four seasons that we have. And it's always coming from people who live in insert state that I don't want to live in here. Like, it's very funny. So my my knee jerk reaction to be like, yeah, but then I'd have to live in that state. I'm very happy. With it's it. so true. It's so true. And this is why we have different strokes for different folks. Exactly. But. And that's why we have seven billion people in the world and four hundred million in America. You gotta you gotta spread them out. Yeah, you gotta spread the them out a bit. Well, two hundred miles. I sent it to you. Appreciate it. I'm gonna take a longer look. Next order of business, we love bikes. I saw a sweet photo of Stu jumping five of his friends today on a bike. Uh, 
Which brings us back to those, like, what is your origin story on a bike? How did you first start riding? Which you can take in any direction you want, meaning when did you actually like, start having the passion for cycling? Or when did you first literally start riding a bike? And since maybe you didn't see this one coming, I can kick it off as you do a little brainstorming within the pretty little head of yours. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up in small town New Hampshire. I would say very similar to here, rural, quiet roads. We actually lived at the end of a cul-de-sac, so, I mean, especially quiet roads. And, uh, I mean, like so much of, like, Americana, the bike was an escape. The bike was how to ride to your friend's house. The bike was riding to school. Um, It also speaks to America because now I can't really fathom putting a three a third grader on a bike and going that literal one mile to school because just the road has gotten so gosh darn busy but at that age um it was awesome and my older brother he was you know the 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 carrot the reason to ride faster to catch up with him and his friends or i would go in the opposite direction and ride to my best friend's houses around the neighborhood uh i remember our convenience store was 1.1 miles away, um, also on the far side of the school. So, you know, penny candy, back when penny candy cost a penny. And going there with 25 cents and buying a 15-cent soda and 10 pieces of candy, I can't believe that's a reality. I sound really old by saying that, but that was <laughs> that was it. And building jumps and riding through the woods. and um, Yeah, that's how I started riding a bike. What about you all? I, too, started when I was young and had a neighborhood very conducive to ripping up and down um, our neighborhood streets, going from friend's house to friend's house, and loved that feeling of independence. But I would say it was really um, my college experience that kicked it into gear and that was that I was a competitive swimmer. I started competitive swimming pretty late. Um, Most swimmers start when they're really young. I started in high school and had a pretty fast progression to what's called like club swimming and was swimming on a team with Olympic trials qualifiers and really, really talented people and was just happy to even be amongst their presence and um, and learning a lot in the sport. And so I wanted to take that to college, and I was pretty specific with where I wanted to go to college, which was the University of Washington. I was born and raised in Washington State. And they were a Division One swim team, and I was, you know, not on anyone's radar for college recruiting since I was didn't have much of a track record um, and had spoken to the coach and he, we had an agreement that I was going to be able to be a walk on to the team. So I was elated. I was going to be able to swim division one. And I, you know, was kind of just barely making my way in onto the team that I probably didn't have the accolades to necessarily have been there. Um, But unfortunately what happened in a very, brief summation is that they over-recruited and ended up having to reduce the size of the team upon school starting and even had to cut 
a couple of swimmers that they had given a scholarship to. So my spot was no longer there. Do they still pay for the tuition of the people who got the scholarship? Yes. And one of them ended up joining the crew team. So like they found their place. But for me, um, it was pretty devastating because I was entering college with kind of the understanding that you're either you're in a sorority or you're an athlete or you have some kind of identity going into college. And so it stripped me of my I'm an athlete identity and um, really kind of just sent me into this like, I don't even know who I am or what I'm doing here and um, had me kind of rethinking all kinds of things. Did you Um, consider joining a sorority? No. (laughs) No. In a word. Sorority is not for me. (laughs) I didn't think so, but I figured I would ask since that was an option. (laughs) Um, But, you know... I stuck it out. I was already, it was a little bit too late to think about trying to transfer schools. And I was just pretty crushed because swimming was this somewhat, you know, still new love of mine. And I had committed so many hours in the last four years to trying to uh, get to the level that I was really going to be deserving to be on this team. And, um, you know, long story short, it I joined the club triathlon, the University of Washington club triathlon team. And at the, I ended up meeting a friend who kind of uh, took me under her wing. Her parents were really serious triathletes. And, you know, it's one of the coolest stories I think I tell to this day because she was, she invited me to take part in this triathlon. And she said, and I was very nervous. And she said, I'll stay with you the entire way. And she did the whole triathlon with me, not caring. I mean, she was a really talented athlete herself, not caring what her performance was. And it allowed me to, you know, feel comfortable and take some of the nerves away from this this brand new thing. And it ended up, that was transformative. It ended up cascading into, you know, 12 years of competing in triathlon to a job in the industry. I worked for Power Bar and Goo and... Um, this whole kind of entry into triathlon was the kind of the, it was the, the start of, um, what would change my trajectory in life, I guess. And so eventually it led just to the bike and I kind of, um, achieved my goals in triathlon, but that is by and large how I found the bike. What was your event when you swam? Uh, 200 IM and the hundred breast. Oh, really? Yep. I would have expected you to be like the 800 or the 1200 swimmer, but you were doing the the powerful fast stuff. Well, I think uh, my body type is suited towards breaststroke. Um, and I was decent at all the strokes, which makes you, I guess, an, an, an okay IMer. <laughs> sure. But I really think I was just, I was so young that I, you know, those events, like I didn't have the years and years and years of, yardage in the water to I think eventually I would have probably gotten there to being more of a long distance more but I was just I didn't have that base yet two of my kids played water polo in high school uh, one of my sons and one of my daughters and their coach they had to swim on swim team to play water polo but they hated swim team they only did swim team so they could play water polo and watching my kids swim on swim team was always really really fun and watching them play water polo was more fun, but swim team was a hoot. So there's something about swim team families too. It's it's a cool 
experience. It, it, it's a cool vibe. It is. Uh, Hazel's in her first round or second round of swim lessons now. And it's just, yeah, it's so fun to watch your child take on something that meant something to you and see them have joy in it. So I've been enjoying that. Pretty soon you're going to be sitting under an easy up tent all day Saturdays with your coffee thermos, (laughs) waiting four hours for a 15 second event and then waiting four hours. Right. I mean, it's right. And you know what that sounded in my past, you know, 10 years ago, that would have sounded like complete drudgery to me. And now I would be delighted Totally. It's a blast. It's like, these are just great family memories. You're sitting there eating donuts and, you know, doing your thing. So it's fun. All right, Stu, your turn. I was, so my origin story begins in motocross because I come from a motocross family. My dad owned motorcycle shops and we have pictures of me at like three years old on a little dirt bike. And so that was sort of where we came from. We had some really tough family stuff happen when I was in middle school and my parents split. And so the dirt bikes all went away. And my mom said, well, let's get you a BMX bike. It's the same thing. It's just you pedal, right? And so this is not the same thing. This is not the same thing, mom. There is no two stroke exhaust on this at all, (laughs) but that's how I got into it. So I got into BMX and I was that stereotypical, you know, early 1990s California BMX kid, big blonde mullet hanging out the back of my motocross helmet and uh, raced BMX and then went to dual slalom and downhill in later years and then XC on the mountain bike and then had a really bad crash when I was 19 and the doc said I had a broken pelvis and doc said, no mountain bikes for a year. You got to stay, you got to stay away from falling off that thing. Get a road bike and you'll be safe on a road bike. And so I got a road bike and that was sort of my entry into road racing, which, you know, is laughable because, you know, you crash all the time on a road bike. So he didn't know what he was talking about, but that was sort of my entry. And so when gravel began to hit the scene, whatever it was, you know, for some of us seven, eight years ago, it was like, this is the stuff we've been doing on road bikes forever. It's just a heck of a lot more fun on 45 mil tires and tubeless and, you know, all that. So that was really sort of the origin for me. It really began with BMX and racing all the national circuit on BMX and then into the mountain bike world. So, uh, not, I'm not trying to make it a, a crazy question. This is a poor way of phrasing it. But tell me about your crash, because that's what the people really want to know about. I was in a a downhill race uh, at Mount Shasta, I'll never forget. And they had had brought out a California Highway Patrol speed trap. Like, you know the trailers that have the giant digital sign on them that they put on the highways? They had brought one out through the fastest section of this downhill race. And so obviously everybody wanted to hit their highest speed through there. And there was, I think it might've been like $50. I mean, it was like nothing, but there was a a preem essentially if you got the fastest speed through this section. And I came through at 53 and then hit a water bar, got a little bit loose and hit a water bar. And my 
bike just exploded. Um, I was racing for a factory downhill team at the time, so I, I won't say the name of the bike, but it exploded and I was an absolute mess. So the story goes, so I was an hour away from my home when I crashed and they kind of bandaged me up and clearly knew something was broken badly and not right. And I hobbled down the rest of the way, kind of in shock. And they tried to put me in an ambulance. And I said, no way, I can't go in an ambulance. It'll be so expensive for the hour back. Just put me in my car. So they put me in my car and they shoved the pieces of this broken bike in the back of this little cheap hatchback car that I had. And I drove back to Redding, California, where uh, I was going to go to the emergency room. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife of 25 years, was working at her parents' restaurant. So I drive all the way to the ER and I get out in front of the ER. This is before cell phones. And I'm honking the horn at the ER for somebody to come out because I can't get out of the car by now. Like the shock has worn off and I'm sitting in a seat, which is like, you know, the worst thing for a cracked pelvis, that yeah. just that flexion. And I couldn't move. So I'm honking and honking and honking and nobody came out. And I probably just wasn't thinking straight either. And so I thought, I know what I'll do. Jen's working at her parents' restaurant. I'll drive all the way across town because I can pull up there and honk and she'll see me through the window. So I drove all the way across town, got her. She came out and then took me to the hospital. And so, yeah, it was a mess. And I was laid up for weeks, just, you know, as you would imagine, you know, road rash everywhere and, you know. I was just banged up. So brutal. 53 miles an hour on a, you know, downhill bike. Did you win the preem? Probably after all of that, you get like second place in the preem. You know what? I don't even, I don't think I won the preem, but here, the great piece is there was a dual slalom race that morning and I beat a big name pro dual slalom guy who was in town and I beat him in the dual slalom and he threw a fit and said that they did the timing wrong because there was no way this no-name kid, local, local, could beat me in slalom. But it's dual slalom. It's like, yeah. I I beat you. And he <laughs> threw such a fit, he didn't race the downhill race. And oh, so he got in his car and he drove away. And then I wadded up in the downhill race. I think I was feeling a bit too confident. So <laughs> there it is, man. I like it. I like it. That's a full summary right there. Busted up. Well... How now, brown cow? That's what I was going to say. Do you want to tell a story of no, crashes? No, we'll, we, we could do a whole episode of my crash. I mean, you crashed at Nationals, right? Uh, I had a visit with the ground at Nationals. <laughs> <laughs> the story that people are all dying to hear. That we'll it's never all wording. Told. We'll leave it at that. That's a whole other episode. Whether or not that's the next one is up in the air. Next time. Yeah. Well, what do you got? Y'all, more? It's been a good chat. It's fun to be together. Indeed. How's the house coming? Uh, it's coming. It's come along. And our whole downstairs last week for the last few weeks was pretty much uninhabitable. And it's all cleared out and clean and looking brand new. And kind of it's very gratifying when you have an image in your head that you hope comes to life and it does in the way that you want it to so it feels good we're enjoying uh the transformation wouldn't you say 
Yeah, it is a, a magnificent upgrade. I mean, it does feel like a totally new house, and and the portion I'm looking at, all we've literally done is painted cabinets, so it's sort of amazing to me. No, that, no, no. Sorry, we also changed the countertops. We painted cabinets. We have different hardware upon the cabinets. We have all new furniture. We have... A new sink, new faucet, new fireplace. Like I said, we painted the cabinets. It's looking really good. Some of these things may just be better for Ted to not know happened, right? Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, I was trying to be also subtle in our gratuitous spending. Um... But the, the best part is that in order to paint one's house whilst living in it, especially in the kitchen, means you move everything out of the kitchen to every other portion of the house, which in our case means taking over the dining room, living room, uh, hallway. Office. Office, and all living quarters outside of sleeping and bathroom. And then, therefore, my point is, uh, what we were probably overwhelmed for about two weeks, three weeks, um, which isn't. I mean, in talking with you, we realized that that's not all that intrusive. Because I mean, I it has come become wildly apparent how crazy it would be to be like, we're going to redo our entire kitchen, and it's not just painting something. It is it is construction. Yeah, so true remodel. Yeah, my punchline there is that. Uh, it is nice to have this new home and it is extra nice to have our space back. And this is a fraction of the work flooring, we're doing. Right. You had already done the flooring in the kitchen or uh, prior, right? Yeah. I mean, truth be told, this has been six years of small changes that finally kind of culminated in the last haul of what we really needed to do. So yeah, the first thing we did when moving in, we have pine floors, which are really cool looking, but, and, more kind of popular in Vermont, but you breathe on them and they dent. So when we moved in, you could pretty much, there were areas where you could get a splinter. They were so roughed up. So we had kind of no choice but to get them refinished. No, that's good. Because that's a big, that's not another big, huge delay if you had to do that right now. Oh, huge. And your house smells pretty toxic for months, so... I'm glad to do that pre-kids. That was kind of hilariously heinous when we moved in. Because we we moved in and then redid the floors. It was like, ah, order of operations. Maybe we should have redone the floors and then moved in. <laughs> right. Or or done everything first, right? And then you do the floors last. But it's you it's your actual life. So the perfect order of operations doesn't apply when it's your actual life. So nope. well, I'm glad the house was coming along. Appreciate it. It is it is very nice. Well, I think we're nearing bedtime here on the East Coast. It's getting to be time. What do you say? Wrap up for the day? Wait, one last thing. You didn't tell us what your race is this week. Oh, I'm doing a Grasshopper Adventure Series, oh. a series you guys know well. You guys oh, have done... Master? I'm doing Huffmaster is on oh, Saturday. I'm jealous. So uh, for the for those who aren't familiar with grasshopper adventure series it might be the oldest gravel adventure series certainly west of the rockies but maybe in the whole country i don't know it's been around forever and it's safe to say yeah they're 26 27 years old now right and your dear friend mig who runs the event i know you guys have ridden with him gobs 
So I'm looking forward to it. It's their second one in the series, and it's just up in Maxwell, California, up in the foothills. A couple big climbs. It's looking like it's going to be pretty sloppy on at least one of the climbs because we've had so much rain. Mm-hmm. So, Is it slated to rain on race day? No, it's in fact slated to rain really hard the next few days and then have two days nice before. But I, I don't think that's going to change much in two days. I think it's going to be pretty sloppy. So he was out pre-riding last weekend and posted some videos. And so I think I'll be putting on some very narrow, very slick tires and rocking and rolling. So that's Saturday. We're going to have to live vicariously through your story and look forward to hearing how that goes. And the next time we talk, I believe we'll probably talk post-Majorca, correct? That's correct. So I can't wait to hear about that trip. It'll be fun. Fingers crossed for sunshine. Right on. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Bye.